Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with 371 trifix, and ENTP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. I'm starting my episodes this month with some exciting news. I have now launched my new website, KarenAnceMD.com, as well as a variety of social media channels on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, all under KarenAnceMD. And I would love for you to start following me on these channels because my hope is that I can start putting out some content that is going to help all of us on our journey. And the theme for this month is the white essence, which is about essential will. And I'm teaching a free class on Wednesdays from six to seven that is going to help all of us to change our habits. So whatever habit you have, I'm working on my nervous system reactivity and my tendency to interrupt. Um, You can also join me on your journey. Do you have a habit around eating food, smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, watching too much television, being on social media, whatever it is, we can come together and use mindfulness and presence and some scientifically proven ways to build new neural pathways in the brain. So I hope that you'll join me. You can visit my website, KarenAnceMD.com, to register for free to come to the classes on Zoom. The second offering that I have this month is on conscious communication and resonant healing. So all of us here in the Enneagram community know that our Enneagram type has given us some core wounds. So I hope that you'll join me so that I can share with you some of the strategies that I've been using to overcome my structure and where I identify. And if we can all embark on this journey together, I think it could be really exciting. So I hope I see you in class. Welcome to The Blind Spot. I am so excited to be having a conversation today with Frederick Kuna. Kuna, Frederick Kuna. We were just talking before we got online about how you identify as a self-pres social sexual blind six. Is that correct? Correct. And Kuna means, tell us the definition and the origin. Kuna is a Flemish word and it means the brave one or the courageous one. So I, I find it some kind of um, practical joke of my ancestry to to somehow end up with this uh, family name. I think that's awesome. I love it. It's like the universe just speaking down through the eons and helping you light up your path. So that must have been a fun insight to discover. So Frederick has been a diplomat for most of his life. And I think he's fluent in six languages and gets by in another four, which is mind-blowing, and um, you discovered the Enneagram somewhere along the way and have started using it in diplomacy is what I understand. Is that, did I get that right? Yeah, indeed. I've been trying to use it. Um, first of all, I've been trying to use it myself when I'm in meetings and so on. I'm, I think it's very important to better understand where the other person is coming from. Actually, that's part of diplomacy, right? Diplomacy is all about trying to understand what's happening and what is the best way for the country we are representing to to really defend our interests. So it's very important to really understand what's happening and that you can read the meta messages of what is being said. 
but I've also been teaching the Enneagram to people in our office. So I've, I've taught the Enneagram to about 20 diplomats. And it's been very interesting because not only has, of course, the dynamics changed a little bit in the office and some people have like a common thing to discuss. And there's some kind of secret language, right? Between the people who know the Enneagram, they have like this kind of um, inside jokes that other people don't get. So that, that's one thing. But the other thing is also that in terms of, of work, Many people have also reported that somehow they find it much easier and in terms of dealing with challenges, in terms of like dealing with their own hierarchy, with bosses that they may have a problem with, or if they have to engage with the government, so it, it makes their life a little bit easier. Yeah. And I love how you're bringing up that you're using the Enneagram for diplomacy and what immediately lands with me as I'm starting to launch my coaching practice, which has a lot of nonviolent communication in it, I'm certified in Marshall Rosenberg's work. And really, we're using diplomacy every minute of every day in our lives, whether I'm negotiating with my children, negotiating with my partner, negotiating with somebody at the grocery store. I mean, we're all should be practicing diplomacy in some way, shape or form. You're just doing it in a much higher stakes way. And uh, and you're in the Ukraine right now. And yeah, yeah. And tell us just a little bit about where you're originally from and the work that you've been doing this year. So, well, I'm originally from Belgium. I grew up there, went to school, university. And then when I was 22, I went to Russia, studied Russian. And then I somehow stick to that part of the world. So I've been working in Tajikistan, Georgia, Belarus, now Ukraine. So I've been in Ukraine for about four and a half years now, and I'm in charge of the team of about 50 people that is dealing with the, the projects that are funded by the European Union and implemented in Ukraine. So, of course, because of the war, the way that we're working is a little bit different from the past. And a lot of what we're doing is very much like supporting internally displaced people, refugees, um, uh, rehabilitation of critical infrastructure the energy grid, and so on and so on. Yeah. So it, it's an interesting place to be right now, of course, but it, it has its challenges, as you can imagine. Who introduced you to the Enneagram? What was the first time you heard about it? I heard about it the first time about eight or nine years ago, because my wife is a psychotherapist, and at that time she was still studying. I mean, she used to have her business, but she didn't want to really continue with that. She wanted to do something else in life, and she started studying psychology, and she met some people as we were posted in Belarus. She met some people who were teaching this weird thing, the Enneagram, and it looked like some kind of Freemason symbol or anything like that. And my wife was saying like, look, Frederick, you, you like all this kind of theories and so on. Maybe you should just give it a try. Uh, my wife was taking an NLP workshop. It was like a retreat. She would take NLP and said, you can go to Enneagram. And if you like it, I'll also take it. Yeah, so I, I went, of course. I was pretty skeptical because, well, as type six, um, that, that was like the, the natural reaction, of course. And I was really like, well, yeah, sure, looks nice, but doesn't really fit. And I was always trying to look for the little mistakes that could be there. But after some time, I really understood that, hey, there actually is, there's probably something in there. And then I really started digging uh, and, and trying to, to understand more. And over the past few years, it's really been taking a lot of my time mm. just because I, I found it such a profound tool for self-analysis. And it's mm. something that has always interested me. I've always wanted to understand like 
why are things happening to me? Why am I behaving the way am I behaving? Why do I end up in situations that I don't like? Like, how can I get out of it? And this tool was really giving me lots of answers. Um, and also my wife as a psychotherapist, she was very much saying that, look, I've been studying for five years, but just studying the Enneagram is almost the same as, a, as the five-year um, curriculum that she went through. Of course, in, in the curriculum in psychotherapy, you get lots of uh, very in-depth um, academic knowledge, but as a practical tool, yeah. most psychotherapists are not really trained in how to really work directly with people. And if you understand the, the, the Enneagram, it's a very powerful tool that does not require five years of in-depth academic studies. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, my experience with 25 years of working with patients gave me so much frontline working with humans experience, just like your experience of being a diplomat. You're working with all of these human experiences. And, you know, we're both in our 40s. And I just think that at this stage in the game, you start to notice some kind of patterns. And then you start to look for systems that help you to predict how you might react in given situations and how other people are reacting. And if we actually use that prefrontal cortex to get out of some of the amygdala hijacking that can go on with humans, it can be really incredibly powerful. And I've come to believe that we have been given this incredible tool with our prefrontal cortex. It's just that many of us don't train it. And this is why for me, insight meditation and learning how to sit with things and become more aware of my own internal body reactions, as well as nonviolent communication, where I sort of unpack all of these patriarchal language structures that I've learned, as well as resonant healing to be able to go back and heal those wounds and the reasons that I get triggered, because we all have very good reasons for reacting to whatever we react mm -hmm. to. We're just usually unconscious to them. And then layering the instinctual drives and the Enneagram on top of all of this, as well as my thing is Myers-Briggs typology, because I think we have to acknowledge that our minds all process information in different ways. Once we have a certain instinctual stack, once we have a certain Enneagram passion and fixation, there's also a cognitive process that's different. And I was playing with you a little offline and we were suspicious that you may be an INTJ and yeah. we were just talking about how intuitive you are and how good you are with bringing structure to things and then actually executing on that plan. You know, I made these observations because you're actually developing a very, very cool curriculum based on some philosophy that deeply resonates with me. So as you start to move out of diplomacy, would you share with our audience your vision of what you're developing and where you're going next? Yes. Yeah, so my vision is that I believe that the Enneagram is such a powerful thing and it could really transform not only people, but societies in general. But it requires that more people know about it. And unfortunately, there are two main impediments for people to really understand the Enneagram. The first one is that it's still quite expensive. Most courses are quite expensive and I understand trainers and teachers, they also need to make a living. But the second thing is also that the knowledge is really being watered down. There's so many teachings, so many videos you can find on the internet that don't really go to the essence, that are caricaturizing too much. And, and caricaturizing is very important in the beginning 
But after some time, you have to see beyond that. You have to go back to the individuality of each person while still noticing the specific trends and patterns that are there. But it becomes somehow too simplistic, um, the whole tool. And this is why many people are mistyping. Most people don't really know the subtypes in enough depth that would allow them to type themselves accurately. So what I want to do is I want to come up with a very in-depth course that would be free of charge, or at least people would be able to donate what they want to donate. And it would be a a three-year course where people would get a video every single day, a video of about 20, 30 minutes, and then there would be some kind of assignment. People would be put in cohorts in a Facebook group or on WhatsApp, and people would be able to exchange their views so that really in a group, they can process what they are hearing. They can also hear from other people. What does it open for them? What does it trigger in them? Because the Enneagram is not just about, it's not just a little fun tool that is like, hey, cool, I'm a self-preservation six. And the Enneagram is not just a little funny tool that you can say, hey, I'm a self-preservation six, so I must be like this and that and that. No, not at all. I mean, well, it's fine to see these things, but the main thing is like, what do you do next? How do you process it? How do you make sure that you stop sabotaging yourself? And this is something that doesn't happen just in a one-week retreat. This is not something that happens by following a course for a couple of weeks or even months. It is something that requires it's a steady process that takes a few years. So what I want or to do Or the rest is, of your I, life. Indeed, the rest <laughs> it's actually it's it's indeed a life it's a lifelong process because the, if we're looking at the holy ideas and the virtues, there's some kind of ideals, right? Yeah. Reaching them is an almost impossible task, but it's about how can you get closer and closer to these ideals. Mm-hmm. So I would like to dedicate the second part of my professional life to spreading the knowledge of the Enneagram and make it accessible to the masses but still while maintaining a very rigorous structure and a very good quality. Mm, That's so inspiring. I'm so excited that you're doing that. I came to know you because you've been doing some work specifically around sexuality and the subtypes. And I know that you have a set of modules on sexuality and the Enneagram. I know that you spoke at the IEA conference in Portugal when you were starting to formulate these ideas And there was so much enthusiasm from the community that you really embarked on collaborating with people that are professionals in this field and also share the interest with the Enneagram. And you have had these focus groups and you have spoken to, I think, thousands of individuals about these topics at this point. How many people are in your database or in the groups of people you've been taking your information from? It's not thousands, but we've been interviewing over a hundred people. Okay. We have um, we have been working with focus groups. So what we did, for example, with Valerie Wanamaker, who's a sex therapist from North Carolina, we have been finding people from the different types, and we put approximately seven to ten people of one type together in one group, and we would have nine meetings with the same group, nine meetings of one point five hours. So that brought us to thirteen and a half hours for each of the types. And how many people were in each group? Each group had about seven to 10 people. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. And these were all people of the same type. So we'd have all sixes together, all threes together. And that would really allow us to find certain patterns because each of the nine sessions we had was focused on a specific topic. For example, why do you have sex? We, we, so we just spoke for an hour and a half, like, why do you have sex? Or we would also speak about how does the passion of your type show up in sex? What about fantasies? That was also um, a topic for, for a discussion of an hour and a half. What about non-monogamy? What is driving you towards? What is driving you away from possible non-monogamy? So we, we had very concrete questions that we wanted to look at. And it really allowed us to come up with specific patterns. Yeah. In terms of levels of development, how does it influence sex and sexuality? What about the instincts and what about the types? Yeah. And I kind of outed myself, you know, I was sharing with you that I am starting to launch some coaching around sexuality. And I shared with you this little bit that I wrote on my website about healing your sexuality circuit. And just for an example, you just kind of lit up and laughed because you're like, oh, this sounds like a self-press three wrote it. So, you know, I'm showing you here the little paragraph of copy that I have. And just so that the audience is noticing some of the things you're tracking, go ahead and name it. You can out me. What, how did I out myself? Just the, the sentence, sexuality is a vital part of being human. That is a sentence that is almost ad verbatim the same of many self-preservation trees that we've been talking to. What other types would say that? Is there any other type that would say that? Or is that really, really self-pres three? You may find some fives that might say something rather similar, uh-huh. but maybe in a, in a slightly different wording. So what would a self-pres six say? Like you're a self-pres six. So speak from your experience. What's different about what I have here than what a self-pres six would say? If you ask a six, like, what is sex, then this self-preservation six is not going to be able to answer it because the, the question is too wide and too simple. Okay. So never, never ask a simple question to a self-preservation six. Never ask them, like, how are you doing? That's a horrible question because it leads to so many things. Well, what do you mean? Like, well, I'm fine, but actually, well, I had so many things to do at work, but there was this happening and that. And while well, the kids are also fine, but I had a fight with my wife. Like. What do you mean? How am I doing? The simplest questions are sometimes the most difficult for sixes, especially for the, the self-press six. So you could see that when you were with your point six focus group, that they were probably having a lot of dialogue with every single question that you asked. There were never simple answers. Is that what you were finding with the six cohort? Yeah, I, I think the discussions we had with type six were the most animated because Sixes have a lot of self, how do you call it? Like self-deprecatory humor? Where, where they Self-deprecating make fun of themselves. humor. Yeah. yeah. So they have a lot of that. And so sex is a topic which is very difficult to talk about. And you very quickly get into very deep emotions, things that have been covered up and people didn't really want to talk about. And sixes deal with that through humor. Sixes tend to may have find it quite easy to make fun of themselves, especially if they are with peers, if they are with people who react in the same way and will also make jokes about it in the same way, it really lights them up and it's more easy for them to to really open up and share their thoughts and feelings. Now, do fours have self-deprecating humor? We kind of think of them as 
envy and sort of comparing themselves? How can you tell the difference between how the fours will discuss and the sixes when you talk about that self-deprecating piece? For type six, it's going to be through self-deprecating humor. But Mm -hmm. for the four, it's not, it was not fun. (laughs) Listening to fours was sometimes challenging and it could really like drain you almost emotionally because it's maybe sometimes it's a little bit it's maybe not self-deprecating for the force but it's with a lot of questioning of themselves and and seeing some of the negative sides of themselves and somehow extrapolating and, and making these negatives look bigger than they may be in reality okay but it was it was not funny to listen to the six uh, sorry, it. it was not funny to listen to the fours, but it was super funny to listen to the sixes. So, although, I... although very often they would talk about very tragic things, things that were really hurtful to them, but they would speak to them in they they would talk about it by making fun about it sometimes. Okay, so I say sexuality is a vital part of being human. What would the social three or the sexual three have said? Why is this a self-pres thing? Well, I, I, look, it's it's not that we have a definition for each of the subtypes like sexuality is, and then they have a mm-hmm. definition for it. Yeah. Uh, we we didn't ask that question, um, but just the, the the way that you phrased it is like a typical phrase that you could hear out of the mouth of a self-press tree. Mm-hmm. And you said maybe also out of a self-press five. Uh, maybe out of fives in general, because they they have a very down-to-earth approach. And it's very much like, well, sex is one of these things that is happening in life, so you just do it. And that sounds in a very similar way to, to what you would hear from yourself. And how about type. ones? Because they're the other competency type. So to me, I'm mapping that this, is this a competency type thing that like we, you know, don't have a lot of allow, a lot of emotional realness, and we don't have to make it all positive and romantic feeling. How would you say ones are about it? But I think of ones as kind of repressed, but what did you find in terms of sex with ones? Well, we, we didn't discuss like the, the, the sentence, like what's your definition of sex or what's your definition of sexuality? What I think uh-huh. is more important is like, why do people have sex? Okay. I think that is the, that's the crucial question. And this is also the question that brings us to the the point of understanding why are some people dissatisfied with their sex life okay and the main reason is that if you look at why do people have sex there are three let's say biological functions of sex Mm -hmm. one is reproduction just passing on the genes to the next generation the second one is recreation because through orgasm um you have let's say, some kind of reset between the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. I I, I like to compare it a little bit like with this reset button on the computer. Mm -hmm. Like in the past, you would have Windows 95, this blue screen, you just push the reset button and everything works again. The same can happen through sex. Now, when you're saying sex, people are more relaxed. But is this, can this also be achieved through masturbation or is it sex with another person, this reset button? It can also happen through masturbation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, again, it's going to be type specific. It'll be also um, dependent on, on the instinct. But the, the orgasm in itself is some kind of recalibration of the central nervous system. And this is why very often after sex and especially after orgasm, people are less anxious. People mm-hmm. are taking things more lightly. They're taking things more easily. If they were frustrated or upset with their boss, 
after sex, after and especially after orgasm, he may just say, well, whatever, I'll, I'll forget about it. Yeah. So it, this is because that is the purpose of recreation, right? It's about mm-hmm. just getting back into a more normal state where you're no longer driven by the automatism of certain emotions that come up. And was there a difference between men and women? Like with men and women, like in terms of this drive for having sex, I think there's a suspicion in the community in general that men are more driven by sex than women. Did you look at that at all in these cohorts? We didn't look at that because that is not related to the to the types or the instincts or anything like that. And there is some of the literature that that speaks in favor of that theory, but there is also some of the literature that would go against it because... And there's some of literature that says that in primitive tribes, the interest in sex um, between men and women can can be the same. And that for and also, for example, that challenges with having orgasm um, is something very specific for our society for women. And that more primitive, what we would call primitive societies, right? So um, horticulturalist societies, pastoral societies, that their women allegedly have less problems achieving orgasm. But again, this was not part of, of the research. Well, I was saying, I think it's interesting because, you know, when I've spoken to men and women, and I do think that this also changes with the life cycle, you know, when you're a teenager or you're a young adult and your hormones are particularly intense. And I think we can all agree that the drive for sex in a 25-year-old tends to be different than the drive for sex in a 75-year-old. Not that both people can't enjoy sex, but it does seem like there's a hormonal aspect to it, which is why I find middle age to be a particularly interesting time in life because you still have hormones, but I don't think they're quite the same as they were when you were 20. And I'm you know, watching these kids ages 15 to 23 have their first experiences with the opposite sex. And there's like an intensity and a flavor and a naivete and a you know, there's just an experience of it that I think I feel a little bit more skeptical and jaded about. And I can now mm-hmm. differentiate between this is my body having a drive for something and this is my social and whatever instincts. You know, I, I get a little confused and I would love to hear you describe, you know, I've been talking in other episodes about when sex is primarily being driven by the self-preservation instinct, it has a certain flavor. When it's primarily being driven by the social instinct, it has a certain flavor. Mm -hmm. And when it's primarily being driven by the sexual instinct, it has a certain flavor. And I've come to the conclusion that the best sex has all three instincts showing up with that other human in some balance that is basically what I think we would all love to be enjoying, because I think that when all three components are there, it's mm-hmm. the most rewarding experience. Does that resonate yeah. with you? Yeah, indeed. Well, there, there's so many things you've raised. So let me first go back on, on the hormonal thing, because indeed sure. there is a difference between men and women. They have a different hormonal cycle. And also, if you look at the sexual desire among women, it's going to be different for, I mean, during ovulation, in, in general, the sexual desire is going to be a little bit higher. Now, I, if, before talking about the instincts, I want to quickly go back to like the reasons why people have sex, because Please. then it's automatically going to bring us to the instincts. So first of all, you have the procreation, then you have the recreation, and the third thing is the relational aspect. During the sexual act, you have a release of oxytocin, which makes people want to care for each other, and it cements the bond that is there 
and they're going to stay together and take care of the offspring. Now, this is what you, I mean, these are the three functions of sex that you will find also in nature with animal species. Not all animal species will have all three of the functions, but if you look at mammals, most of them will have these three. Now, but Homo sapiens sapiens has one more reason why they have sex. And that's actually the biggest reason why people have sex. And that is ego gratification. Now, there was a research done by, by two psychologists about 20 years ago, and they asked their students, like, why do you have sex? And the students came up with all kinds of different reasons. And they, they had like, these professors came up with a total list of 267 reasons why people would have sex. And only about one fifth related to procreation, recreation, or relation. If you look at the rest, it's all related to some kind of ego gratification. I have sex because I want to feel powerful. I want to have sex because I want to feel love. I want to have sex because I want to feel secure. I want to have sex because I want to be dominated. Now, this has nothing to do with the biological functions of sex. So people are looking for something in sex, but sex is not made for that. So if you're looking for the wrong thing, very often it can lead to some kind of dissatisfaction. If you go to the bakery and you want to buy a steak, what happens is then you're upset because, well, there is no steak. And, and what happens very often is that in sex, people are blaming their partner and say that, look, my partner has a problem with sex because he's like this or that or that. But in reality, people do not see that they as well are looking for the wrong things. Now, do you have any direct experience with this you're willing to share in your younger years? What do you think you were looking for from sex that as you've become more aware and just maybe speaking for other self-pressed sixes, like what does that look like with that personality structure and that egoic agenda? Yeah, so very specifically for the self-preservation six, they're very often looking for some kind of sense of security. They're looking for some kind of stability. Very often they want to have a sense of being nurtured. But sex, sexual play is about playing with polarities. It's not about security. Right. It's not about providing a sense of safety. It's actually about going beyond your own safety. It's about exploring. It's about going into the unknown. Mm -hmm. and, and this is why the self-preservation six tends to be uh, what I would call some kind of uh, libido assassin. Because... Self-preservation sexes, they don't like polarities, but sex is about polarity. Um, sex requires a certain self-confidence, but self-preservation sexes don't have the self-confidence. What there, about social and sexual sexes? How would they be with that? Sexual sexes are very different. The, the, the sexual six is the counter type, and they go against it. But they also have some kind of, inside of themselves, they have some kind of ambiguity or some kind of inner contradiction, some kind of inner conflict, because they don't like the polarities, but they still want to play with polarity. They want to be in safety and security. They want to have the stability, but then they still want to explore. So for sexual sexes, it's a, it's a completely different experience. And of course, also for the partner of these types, it's a completely different experience. And how about social? You talked about self-present sexual. How would social six be different from the other two? For the social six, um, it is more about making sure that the relationship is still fine. 
And and there it's going to be more a question, is this sexual instinct going to be second or is it going to be last? Because that is going to, the, 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 let's say the temperamental aspect of the sexual play is very much determined by the self-preservation or the sexual instinct. People who have a dominant social instinct are less focused on the intercourse of the sexual act. It's more about doing something together and doing something that shows that the relationship is still fine. So this fix, the social fix can very often be anxious and really question, is the relationship still fine? And sex can actually give this confirmation or the affirmation that yes, things are still okay in the relationship. Yeah, I love what you're saying. And this is where we can see that the instincts are very, very different. And actually what we came to understand is that possibly the instincts play a bigger differentiating role in sex and sexuality than the types. Okay. Because for the self-preservation instinct in general, sex is very much about the physiological release. People Mm -hmm. who are self-preservation dominant, the main thing about sex is achieving orgasm. Mm -hmm. And if we're looking at some of the hard types, they're going to completely disagree. Like a self-preservation two or self-preservation four are going to say, what do you mean? No, no, it's about the relational thing. It's about my partner. Well, no, it is not. Because self-preservation twos and self-preservation fours, they may have major, especially the women, will have major challenges achieving an orgasm through partnered sex. But then they're still going to masturbate or use a vibrator in order to achieve an orgasm. Right. Now, if you masturbate, the aim of masturbation is to achieve an orgasm. There is nothing relational about your relationship with your vibrator, right? Right. So, but this again is that we do, we very often do not want to be aware of some of these tendencies because of our type. So for the self-res, it's very much about the, the, the physiological release. For the sexual instinct, it's more about having some kind of peak experience. It's very much about this drive. It yeah. is still very much self-centered. It's not about the relational aspect. It's not about the partner. It's about me having this very intense emotional experience. Mm-hmm. And for the social instinct, it's less about the sexual act as such. It's less about the penetration. It is more about how are we as a couple? Um, okay. and, and what you hear very often from people who, who are social dominant is that for them, having sex is something a little bit similar like these, these clocks that you can use for chess. You have sex, you push it, and then you know the relationship is fine. But then after some time, after a few days, it's like, oh, we didn't have sex for some time. Like, are we still okay? They have sex and they feel, okay, things are fine. You you yep. click on this clock again. Yep. So I'm interested in, we talked about self-preservation dominant being about the orgasm. How does it look different if it's self-pressed social versus self-pressed sexual? Well, look, at the end of the day, we have all three instincts in ourselves, right? right? So all three components are going to be there. And, and, and even then, if you want to go into more detail, you should actually look at the zones. Russ Hudson did quite some work on the zones. So he identified three zones in each of the instincts. And actually, each of these zones have a specific way of showing up in sex. Because if okay. we are looking, and for example, just to give the example only of the self-preservation instinct. Self-preservation instinct, he came up with three zones. One is self-care. The second one is 
resources. And the third one is about um, home life and, and comfort. If you look, people who are self-preservation dominant, they're not all going to be the same. So for example, self-care for some people, the self-care is very much going to be in terms of a hierarchy of needs. Like sex is part of being human, right? As like self-pressed tree would say. Um, all the self-pressed have something like that, but the self-pressed tree is maybe the more direct in formulating it in such a way. But it means that for self-preservation dominant people, they have a hierarchy of needs. They're not going to have sex if they're hungry, if they're tired, or if they still have to do something that's very important. For people who are sexual blind, it doesn't, uh, who are self-preservation blind, it doesn't matter. If they're tired, they're st still going to have sex if the partner makes some kind of advances on them. But for those who are very strong in the self-care, that's going to be very important. Also, the aspect of hygiene is going to be very important. They're going to say that, look, if you don't take a shower before sex, no sex is going to happen. For people who are blind in this specific zone, in the heat of the moment, they may say that, look, of course, everybody prefers hygiene. Everybody prefers a clean body with a nice smell. But somebody who is blind in this zone of self-care may just say like, hey, we forget about it. We're, we just want to have sex and we're going to do it. So they're going to forsake that element. If we're looking at the zone of, um, of resources, self-preservation dominant people are what I would call resource or energy efficient, which means that output has to be equal or higher than the input, to put it in technical terms. They want to get their orgasm, but they don't want to put in more energy than what it is really worth. So very often, self-preservation dominant people are going to come across as slightly passive. They're not going to put in the biggest effort and sex can feel like work to them, especially if they have a partner who has challenges achieving orgasm. So for a self-preservation person, it may be very much like an obstacle to have sex. It's like, look, yes, I want to have sex. I want to have my orgasm, but my partner should also have his or her orgasm. And it may take quite some labor from my side. So nah, let's forget about it. <laughs> okay. So as I'm listening and to you talk, this is, so I've been talking to lots of people about the instincts because I am fascinated at how we're defining the instinctual stack. I'm fascinated about whether stacks really exist. Um, I'm curious about people who are on a growth journey versus people who are not. I know that I've spoken to some people that really don't like the idea that there's a stack at all. A lot of people very much feel like all of my instincts are very accessible to me. And I'm just going to speak from my own personal experience in that for me, I've always known that like work is very important to me. So it's like, if I got to get done what I got to get done for work, and then like kids and family are very important to me. And so I do what I need to around kids and family. And maybe I've struggled in partnerships because that's always been the third thing on, on the list. Um, now that doesn't mean that we don't have sex, but it's like efficient sex as opposed to a sexcapade, you know, which is where you take a day and it's about you and your partner. You know, now that I have kids that are basically almost adults and I have a lot more free time in my life and I feel like my work, you know, just in terms of financial security, in terms of being where I kind of want to be at midlife 
it feels like there's a lot more openness to that zone. And so doing blind spot work and kind of playing in the sexual instinctual energy domain, like on the one hand, there's a part of me that feels sad that I didn't prioritize enough time for this in the first 25 years of my life that I was sexually active, but also becoming a doctor and raising kids. Mm -hmm. But that was the choice that I made. And honestly, I don't know how you become a doctor and have four kids and have more time for that sexual instinctual play. But if you're sexually instinctually dominant, you'll make different life choices. Like you might not choose to become a doctor because you know going in, that's going to take a lot of time. You might not choose to have four kids because you have one or two and you're like, man, there's not enough time for this thing that I really love and enjoy. Whereas with my life trajectory being self-pressed, social, sexual, blind, it's really only now in midlife when those other priorities were sort of taken care of that now I'm like, oh, wow, this zone's really fun. And it almost feels like in some way things are flipping for me because I've spent too much energy maybe in the self-present, the social worlds, and now I really want to prioritize sexual. So some people, when they hear me talk or my life experiences say, oh, you must be sexual dominant. And I'm like, well, no, I'm not because look at what I prioritized in my life. I'm 49 years old and I'm kind of getting around to this domain now. And now that I'm opening myself up to it, I'm like, wow, there's a lot of other people that I know, given the people I affiliate with, because on some level, birds of a feather flock together. So living in suburban Chicago, in a community where people really prioritize work and family, I feel like I'm surrounded by tons of sexually blind individuals. And being a physician and having intimate conversations with people about how sexually active they are, I'm shocked that at mid-age, there are so many people that have almost let that muscle atrophy to the point where it almost feels overwhelming to start using it in middle age when all of a sudden the self-pres and the social needs in theory, if that's what you've been prioritizing, are not as important. And so that's actually why I'm sort of speaking out in this domain as a sexual blind individual and saying, hey guys, there's like a lot of joy here. And, you know, I may have not gotten divorced after 17 years if my ex-husband and I both weren't sexual blind and had actually prioritized our relationship. You know, he's a nine and I'm a three. It's really easy for both of those types to just avoid conflict, avoid the problems, and just kind of go into the automatic egoic pattern of work and family. And if you're both sexual blind, it's pretty easy to see how the wheels can come off the bus in that way. So I'm just curious after hearing me sort of break down what I'm observing, what did I get right? And what do you want to tweak or correct and add? Yeah. Well, the, the first thing that I want to say is that these packs, I mean, that's a theory. It's a model. Yep. It's not that God created humans and said, oh, and now I'm going to create a stack of instincts. Because at the end of the day, it's not three, it's not three instincts. It's just like three groups of instinctual habits. And yes. I think the main thing is not saying that, oh, I'm first self-preservation and then second uh, social, third, whatever. I think it's more important to see, like, how does my type influence this specific zone in each of the instincts? And okay. how does one zone create an obstacle for another zone? So, for example, how does the resources, for example, how does that impact? The social instinct, for example, like 
in my case, socially second, I like to hang out with friends. But then still my self-preservation is still a little bit stronger. And then I'm like, yeah, but then I first have to get dressed. I have to go there. I have to sit there and I have to spend money. Of course, I'm caricaturizing a little bit, but I think that is more important. This stack is not in, this stack is not the crucial thing. It's really about how do you analyze your own behavior yeah. through seeing the patterns of specific zones and how your your type plays into it and so and on. just to add to that like i have this joke that if i'm going to kind of a social instinctual zone activity like a wedding or something like this i'm like i will always tell like whoever i'm going with okay i have a two to three hour window for this kind of activity and then i want to get home and i want to get to sleep and i don't want to drink too much because i'll feel bad tomorrow so like promise me we can leave by 10 and this is going to be our exit strategy that's like a very self-pressed social thing I go, I know I can enjoy myself for an hour or two, and then enjoyment starts to drop off, and I'm looking for the escape hatch. Yeah, indeed. So this is why it's not that important to look for the hierarchy of the instinct, but rather, how do the different instinctual patterns influence each other? And how do you create even more nuance because of the the, the distortion of the type? But that's the, the, the first comment I wanted to make. The second comment is a little bit on there is this kind of idea that people who talk about sex or who are interested in sex, they must be sexual dominant. There is a fact that I do believe that a lot of the literature that is written on sexuality, a lot of the people in the field of sex therapy tend to be sexual dominant. And I think that this is not always helpful because very often these therapists are going to deal with their patients through the lens of their own experience. And they may believe that sex has to be done through the lens of the sexual instinct. Sex has to be something ecstatic. Well, not necessarily. It depends for whom. For people who are self-preservation dominant, there are many couples who are self-preservation dominant, both of them. And they have sex maybe once in three months or even less than that. And they're fine with their sex life. And sometimes these people go to a sex therapist and say, oh, there must be something wrong. We only have sex once every three months. That's fine. If they are happy with that, then what's the problem? There is no norm of how often people should be having sex. Right. But I'm curious now, you said self-preservation dominant people are using orgasm as a reset for the nervous system. So why are there people that only need that every three months? There are people who find other ways of relaxation. Got it. Okay. Some yep. people can just walk in nature and they calm down. Yeah. Some people I, use I, I marijuana would... or alcohol. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Look, sex, look, if you want to relax by having a walk in nature, it's going to take you more than three minutes. If you try to achieve orgasm through masturbation, you can easily do it within three minutes. It's a quick fix. Yep. Right? But some people, we, we all have our own ways. And um, nowadays, we have so many ways of, of relaxation. Okay, makes sense. Because actually, there's a lot of people saying that the young people are less sexually active today than they've ever been. Have you heard this statistic? Well, yes, I, I've heard the statistics. Um, and I think that indeed, it is just because there are so many other ways of yes. keeping oneself busy. Yep. In in the past, you just had TV and the bedroom. 
Now you have so many bars, restaurants, you have, unfortunately, social media people are... Some people prioritize social media over the relationship with the people who are with them in the house. What do you think about that? Is that okay? Like, what if people are just having all of this this virtual pleasure? It's tragic? I think this is tragic. Mm -hmm. Because all this social media... Look, at the end of the day, if we're looking, we are all seeking connection. Mm -hmm. And it's about seeking a connection with the divine inside of ourselves, but we can only do that if we are also in connection with other people. Mm. And social media gives us, it's an imitation of connection. Yes. It gives us an illusion of connection. You're talking to a hundred people online, but you're not connected to them. Right. There's no intimacy about it. Yes. When we're talking about sex and intimacy, some people think that sex is intimacy. No, no, no. Intimacy is about being open, about being vulnerable. Most people have sex in a way that there is no intimacy. Mm. They're not opening up. Mm. And I think this this is the tragedy of the whole thing that people are less and less used to face each other, have the tough discussions that you have to have as a couple. Yeah. Because the romantic ideal that problems will sort themselves out, that's an infantilistic idea. Yeah, people must be in in every relationship. There will be challenges, and you have to talk straight to the face. But it's easy to run away and talk to other people on Facebook. So we're going to cut the conversation that Frederick and I had here today because it got a little bit long. Because we have so many more exciting things that we want to share. So I hope you tune in next week, where we'll pick up right here in the conversation and continue to hear all of these wise words from Frederick. If you're enjoying these episodes, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at social at karenansmd.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice, including typology, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Please visit my website at karenancemd.com to schedule a free 30-minute consultation if you'd like to work with me in any way. We also have the opportunity for free classes.